Hello and welcome back everybody to another episode of the .NET on AWS show. My name is Brandon Minnick and with with me as always is my amazing co-host Francois. Francois, welcome back. How's your vacation? It was awesome. <laughs> um, I really enjoy it. I am starting back with you, Brandon, on this live stream on the .NET and AWS show. That's a good way to resume uh, to a uh, normal life after uh, <laughs> vacations. So really great to start with you. Thanks. Yeah, we, we missed you while you were gone, but well-deserved. And as an American, I'm always very jealous of the, we'll say, the paid time off you get <laughs> in yeah. Europe because we... We don't have anything legally mandated in the U.S., and then we just have to hope companies give us some paid time off, which AWS does, but it's yeah. not as good as Europe's <laughs> someday. Yeah. But, uh, but first of all, I'm so glad you're back because we have such a big week. Uh, folks who may not know, there is a totally free conference tomorrow that actually Francois has been putting together and building up. So Francois. Tell us, tell us about it. What, what's going on tomorrow? What are we doing? Yeah, so tomorrow um, we have a .NET, uh, we have .NET Enterprise Developer Day. Uh, it's a free virtual conference hosted um, by uh, the developer Cloudix. So uh, we are we are co-hosted by developer Cloudix. Um, we have two tracks for this conference for for you. Uh, one. Um, Track targeting uh, migration and modernization of .NET application on AWS, and the second track is focusing on uh, .NET developer productivity on AWS and uh, how to build .NET cloud native application on AWS. So you can uh, pick your favorite flavor. Uh, you can mix between the two tracks. It's uh, all up to you. So we will uh, cover a lot of topics about uh, topics such as. Uh, serverless computing, uh, database, um, uh, AI coding companion, for example. We, we will um, discuss about Amazon Code Whisper, our AI coding companion. Uh, and we also have um, amazing uh, guests like uh, Martin from uh, JetBrains, uh, who will speak about uh, Rider. We, we will also welcome uh, Leila Bugria, who will speak about um, messaging. And best practice for messaging. So uh, we it's a it's a great day. We we try we've tried to craft a, an awesome day for you, uh, for you .NET developers. So you can still join. Uh, the URL is there. So feel free to register and to to join. It's free. Yeah. Thanks so much, Francois, for the intro and also for just your hard work putting it together. I know it's going to be amazing tomorrow and. I know the the link looks pretty crazy on the screen here, uh, but we dropped it in the comments so you can just click it, go straight to Eventbrite, or I'm sure if you just search Eventbrite.net Enterprise Developer Day 2023, we'll probably find it somewhere. But yeah, do join us tomorrow. Uh, like we mentioned, it's it's totally free, and we have some of the most amazing people <laughs> coming to talk about all about .NET tomorrow. Whew, but I'll tell you what, Francois, speaking of amazing people, we've got a really fun guest today. And so... Yeah. Don't want to waste any more time on announcements because he has so many stories to tell. You know him at, in the .NET community. You've seen him speak at conferences. He's a Microsoft MVP doing pen testing, security consulting. Niels Tannis, welcome yeah. to the show. Thanks, welcome, Thanks for having me. Hi, Francois. Hi, Brendan. Good to be here for sure. 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Neil. So for, for folks who don't know you, who are you and what do you do? So um, my name is Neil Steiners. Um, I'm working as a security researcher for, for Vertacode. And in my day job, I focus on doing static analysis for .NET applications. So that's where my background of .NET development and security come together in a real good way. Um, my history with .NET, I started out the .NET development with the first bits in, um, in 2002, right after my studies. I did my, um, my wrap up in security, software security. Um, and I, uh, once I read the writing secure code book, which was written by Michael Howard, which is still as applicable on everything right now. Um, I decided like, okay, writing good software, it's hard. Um, I need to focus on building software. And at some point I'm going to move into the security space. So I've done that for a decade, a lot of development projects, but in the Netherlands, uh, doing some work at ISV. And then I have the uh, option to move into the security space. Um, and a little bit shy of a year, I focused on doing ethical hacking pen testing, which was a lot of fun because you move into a company with a team and there's always a group of people who have their own expertise. I was the layer seven guy that always focused on, on applications and that security. And um, breaking into stuff, let's say hospitals, insurance companies, some stuff related to tax office in the Netherlands, it's, it was all a combination of that, which was fun. But then I recognized like, hey, I do enjoy building software as well. And then um, my current employee, Vericode, came into the picture. And in 2016, I moved into a team where um, we as security research or applied security research, as we call ourselves, we focus on static analysis of the variant of language that we support, um, which is, of course, .NET, for a big chunk, Java, iOS, Android. There's a lot of stuff. Uh, there's a bigger team with me. It's, it's, it's fun. Um, and I've been there since 20, 2015, right? So it's uh, it's been a blast. Time flies when you're having fun. And on top of that, I also talk a lot about security at conferences towards developers, right? Because that's still the two worlds combining. Um, talking about .NET space and talking about stuff, which I think we should focus on a bit more. And um, yeah, that, that's in a nutshell, at least my background and what I'm doing right now. Oh, I love it. And and yeah, I, I agree so much because as you're, as you're speaking to security and it is, it is super important, uh, we should all be focusing or at least having security, the thought in the back of our mind when we're writing apps. But as you're saying, as you're explaining everything that's going on, I'm thinking to myself like, oh gosh, I really need to be better about this. Uh, yeah. So what about, what about somebody like me? Like I've been writing .NET code for, for years, over a decade now. Uh, like what are some of the big things we need to worry about or that I, sh I should be worried about? <laughs> so if you if you would throw in a buzzword that's tied to the industry right now, it's of course all about supply chain security, which um, of course it's a, it's a big story if you look at it. And, and supply chain can be seen as like I have a piece of code that gets written and I have a deployment artifact that somewhere gets pushed to a registry or it's a Docker container and it gets released to my cluster to be executed on, on the internet. Um, that's the whole supply chain. And what could possibly go wrong within those that, that whole stretch of writing code? Um, I always tell the story about um, as a developer, you need to have access to systems. Um, so you need to have access to source control that you're using and what happens, credentials get stolen, right? So source uh, repositories get compromised. And that's of course a thing. And it, technically, if you look at it, we use software to write our own software. So to make it even a bit more, let's say obscure, um, 
the, the fact that we use tools that are being developed also extends our supply chain to those tools. So if that tool gets compromised and for some reason decides to do additional stuff, um, yeah, that, that, that's also a compromise of supply chain security. And what can you do as a developer? I think it's 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 definitely important to be um, um, aware of, let's say, credential hygiene, right? Um, multi-factor authentication. I'm assuming that most of the people are using it. Um, it's important to make sure you safeguard the resources that matter most to you. So that's the first bit. Then if we look at access and systems, and let's say we do a pretty good job, what's the next part we need to be worried about? Um, then we have build servers that are involved, right? Which can be run on, on AWS or on another, the other uh, ones, GitLab, GitHub, it's, it's all there. You can run your CI CD systems over there. And what can happen with those? They can get compromised, right? And the example that's industry widely used, and I'm also using it myself a lot, is of course what happens with SolarWinds. Um, they had one of the build servers compromised, and they were building a malicious package, which was even uh, signed with the right code certificate. So it was hard for consumers to even determine if that was a good package or not, because it looked it looked right. It was signed. It ticked all the boxes, but only by looking into its internals and into how it behaves. That was um, the only way to figure it out. And that's exactly what happened, right? So there was a, a, a group that focused on what type of like uh, network uh, traffic was produced by the package once it got deployed. And um, just a matter of context, SolarWinds is software that was used to monitor your infrastructure, for example. And you can probably imagine that that's deployed across organizations. So once you have access to those agents or pieces of software that get deployed on the infrastructure, you can imagine that People with malicious intent <laughs> um, are, uh, of course, um, the ones that are like easily uh, tempted to do such a thing, right? And you can you can question yourself by saying, "Hey, is this um, what's behind this?" And we can discuss that. And I don't want to go into that direction, but it's more um, there's a lot of moving parts, and even with a build server being compromised, it's hard. And and uh, on top of that. If you then look at development in general and what can we do as a developer, then um, there is a term called uh, software bill of materials or SBOM um, that a lot of the vendors are using and we're using it ourselves as well, which is a, a artifact you should produce from your software explaining what's inside. Because I think in general, even if you, uh, let's say either if you want to develop a project or you want to build something on top of things, I use the AWS SDK myself as well, right? You get that package from the internet, from NuGet, you get it installed, you run it. Like how much um, uh, do you then have as a, um, um, how, much, um, um, how much trust do you have in that package and how much of stuff that you're aware is inside that package, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's hard, it's really hard to determine what's the case. Um, so, um, by taking that, by looking into it, I think developers need to be more aware of like, what do you expect from a library if you get it from NuGet? Or what do you expect from a, a component that you just get and build on top of? Um, if you generate documents, that's always the example I gave. Let's say you have a component that generates PDFs. What do you expect from that component to do? Do you expect it to do heavy cryptography as well? Might be because it needs to sign documents. But do you also expect it to reach out to the internet by, let's say, doing requests, right? There's, uh, there's a lot of things you um, 
could say, let's say, I, I expect this from a library. And as a developer, I think it's good to be aware of it. And if you look at the whole .NET um, ecosystem, how it works right now, you have a library that will run on a process and that the library will have access to any resource that's owned, like that's accessible by that process as well. There's no way of limiting what it's allowed to do. Of course, we need to always lock down the process itself. Maybe we run inside of a container. Of course, it's good to have an old root container, to have uh, not a lot of stuff installed on that thing as well, reduce its attack surface, as they would call it. That Those are all things that we need to be aware of. But within .NET, there is not a real way of saying, hey, I want to limit what this library is allowed to do. And when I started out, the um, um, like doing more conference talking, I, I introduced a concept where I take a .NET uh, load context, which is responsible for loading DLLs and resolving types, and then chopping out stuff that I don't want libraries to use. So it's more like a, a poor man's sandbox that I created in order to uh, to do stuff with it. Um, and the funny thing about it is that it's it's almost similar to what we have with code access security that was around when the .NET uh, first release of .NET was done. And um, code access security, of course, didn't work that well and it was easily switched off. But the concept was something that I really thought like, hey, this is a missed opportunity. And funny fact is that if you now look at what the industry technically, like technology is doing and how it is evolving, Another topic I'm talking a lot about, and last year I did a couple of talks on it as well, which is WebAssembly has a similar type of model where it takes a abstracted system abstraction, which they call WASI, right? It's it's allowing you to run WebAssembly outside your browser and it has access to, if you will put the equivalent within the .NET space, it's almost the same as NAT standard. We have that generalized layer in between. But the nice thing with the WebAssembly runtime is that they allow you to lock down. And by default, it cannot do anything. And if it needs to have access to files, you need to explicitly tell the runtime to have access to folder X or Y or, or not at all, if you don't want. And on top of that, it will also get access to, let's say, if you want to do external communication for that same way. Um, I'm, I want to reach out to this server. Am I allowed to do it? No, yes or no. That's an additional layer of defense. And I think that's pretty powerful. And I would love to see it within the .NET space. Um, Funny thing is that they did do similar things. So Steve Sanderson, the guy who did all the blazer magic, showed .NET Isolator, which was like, I, when I first saw the demo, I was like, oh, this is exactly what I mean, right? That was the first cartoon. But he has code that he runs in a different context. It almost makes you feel this one context. And you can limit what it's allowed to do. So you can take code that you don't trust between quotes and execute it in a safe manner. And that was pretty cool. And that was also a programming model, which was pretty, let's say, it was slick. And my programming model that I have with my sandbox is like, it takes a lot of effort to take a library, put it in a separate project, abstract it away in order to do it, right? There's probably something I could do with source generators, but getting a good developer narrative for it in order for everybody to use it, right? That should be the end goal. And that's hard because I want to do it in such a way that everybody can work with it. But um, yeah, this may be a bit of procrastination. I don't know, but it's more like, it has potential, but I think that, that that's 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 one thing you need to be aware of. And then if you're taking developers like libraries for external dependency on sources, um, be aware of what's inside. What do you expect? And and then of course we can more pivot into supply chain because there's a lot more to it. But looking at libraries, I think that's the key, right? Because every statistic that you see, 80% of our software consists of other ones' code, which 
people would put up <laughs> for debates. And like, that's not completely true, but how much do you really use? But still, if you take a library and it's part of the, the thing that you deploy, it's in the attack surface, right? So it's there. Yeah. So let me ask you. So <clears throat> I've got a couple open source libraries that I maintain and publish to NuGet. And yeah. what we started doing is, um, and I forget the the right word, so feel free to correct me. Uh, but basically, doing vulnerability scans for NuGet packages and including the transient NuGet packages, so yep. the NuGet exactly. packages that your NuGet packages depend on. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm curious because I I think it's new. At least it's new ish to me. Like it's been around for a couple years now. Um, but uh, how, what are, what are your thoughts on doing that? Like for somebody who has a library that yeah. wants to get started with security. Is this where they should start? I think there's like two paths we can follow in this this, uh, this question, but it's a good one. I think um, the thing you're talking about is software composition analysis, and there's a lot of the commercial vendors who do it as well, but you can see which libraries are used by packages, but also the transitive ones. There's always a bigger tree of stuff you get for free if you take one package. It's, not, it's, it's never going to be one. There's always a lot of <laughs> and even with the .NET CLI, you can now do a transitive, like show me the vulnerable packages in your CLI, right? And you can get that easily. And that's, of course, a, an easy step to take and a big win. But on top of that, I think it's also good if you, as a, as a library developer or anybody else, would produce a, a SBOM that has the same transitive information. So, for example, you have a project called Cyclone DX that's run by OWASP that allows you to create a transitive tree of any technology stack and .NET, it does the same. Uh, and that should be an artifact that you should tie to your build, saying like, hey, this SBOM, this, it's a J, you can do a JSON document, it's being created by this build action step, um, might even be signed if you look at um, uh, how we can do it, right? If you have, for example, um, there's SLSA Salsa, that's a framework that allows you to sign stuff, right? But you can take the identity of the build server and reach out to Sigstore, which is a uh, project that's, um, and they want to do, uh, let's say, um, software signing for everybody. And that's freely available. You can just use, right? That's Sigstore. It's pretty cool. And there's CoSign that allows you to sign documents as well, like containers as a whole, and publish that information. And by signing, um, the S-bomb and maybe also your package. I'm not saying you safeguard your supply chain because stuff might still be wrong inside, as I said with SolarWinds, right? Because who knows what happened with your build steps. But you at least have some proof of the fact like, hey, this package was built against this transitive tree of dependencies. I'm relying on this if you run this. Um, and it would be good if you know, like, hey, that's a transitive dependency that has a vulnerability, so people need to update, or at least people need to be notified. And then take their own call on having stuff updated or not, because as I said, libraries might be in your application, but who knows? You're not using parts that will make you vulnerable. So maybe it's a good call to just wait for the normal cadence when you release in order to disrupt all the things. Right? That might be a call to make, and that's a business call. Security-wise, people need to sign up for it. Right? That's the thing. But uh, then you will give them the information that they can use in order to do that. Right? I think that's. I would love to see everybody produce that. And that, this is almost like a lightweight S-bomb of the library and the transitive things, uh, as I said, and Cyclone DX is not only .NET, it's, it's NPM, it's Maven, it's, it's everything. Every ecosystem is supported in a good way. 
and it's freely available, so you can use it, right? So why not go? Um, I think that will be a good thing to do, for sure. And that's that's one that's one pillar. I said that there were two pillars, right? So um, if I if I may, uh, I want to take the other route as well, because um, looking at um, building software in general and the stops that you do in order to get from source to binary, it would be good to have some kind of a ledger of stuff that happened, right? So. And in um, in supply chain terms, they sometimes call this provenance or like proof of what happened during the build. Um, if you run, let's say, you take SLSA, that's, that's, that's the word framework I work most with, so that's the example I'm gonna use, but you can take a .NET build and say, I want to sign provenance, right? And if you then run it on GitHub Actions, that's the thing that they have available right now. You can generate provenance of the build, it will output this is the uh, this is the tag that was done by this person. Um, it will it, it was built based on based on this machine, this build agent. It was done in this point in time, and then it will also take the identity of the build server and reach out to Sixstore to sign all the stuff that happened. Which totally there's a lot of information, and still you can question. Uh, well, it's uh, got my supply chain. No, but it will show others that will consume you, right? If you look at it from a consumer perspective, it will show the others like, hey, this software package was built this way. And let's say we know for sure that in the past we have a version that eventually becomes vulnerable because somebody else uh, didn't talk about this, right? The people find vulnerabilities, maybe they, maybe they keep it for themselves. They can then, uh, you can just look back as like, hey, when was it built? How was it built? Are we vulnerable or not? Right, you have enough information to work from, um, and having that provenance, I think that's also an additional thing to share, and then to just to be open and transparent about what's inside, and allow others to consume it. And um, these all these S bomb and all this information. When I started out talking about this, you can produce a lot of information, but as I said, it won't safeguard. The only way you can uh, allow it to work for you is work on the data and do something good with it, right? And now there's a, some other projects show, uh, popping up where you can just query databases of SBOM data. And then you can say like, hey, in my organization, we run uh, .NET apps that, and we, I want to know like, hey, which runs on this version because I know there was a patch done on that, on that runtime. And I need to make sure that all my machines that are running this version I will get patches in the next round I'm doing it, right? So that gives people the information to work from. And as I said, even if people are developing and consuming the package that you create, it's good to have that, that SBOM and that provenance data available for them to consume and to take their own decisions. And to say like, hey, oh, this is not something I need to act on right now. Like it can wait until my next release, but I'm aware of it, right? And I think that's the biggest thing, that it's not a big black Whole what everything gets dropped into, right? I think that that's the thing that the industry can definitely improve on, and there are some good initiatives. And it's 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 hard. I get that, but um, yeah, let's let's take small steps at a time. As I said, that will that will for sure help us in the right direction. Absolutely. And so, question for you, and this is personal curiosity. So, all these packages that get flagged as having security vulnerabilities. Like I've seen it happen a couple of times. Like one time was with newtonsoft.json, which certainly rattled the industry because who wasn't using newtonsoft.json just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, so how, how does that knowledge get shared, get disseminated? So, because somebody has to find that security vulnerability and I assume somebody yeah. has to report it to NuGet or however, um, however that process works. 
What what does that look like? And I guess who who or what are we as developers relying on to do that? Is this mostly a community backed effort? So I think there's also um, I think there's like two different worlds in that from that perspective as well. I'm going to just come up with two examples again. <laughs> if you have if you have the projects that are run by single people in their free time because they enjoy it and they want to give back to the community, right? I, I, I sincerely hope that they have some kind of a security process where they allow people to disclose stuff in a good way with them, right? To say like, hey, if you go, there's a security.txt or security markdown file in the repo that's with the, with the library. And if you found something, uh, this is the way how to disclose it or put in a fix if you want to, right? And then from that perspective, it's it's only the, the people who develop the library to make sure that it, it pops up and it gets propagated, right? getting a CVE assigned to it, saying like, this is a serious issue, everybody needs to work their way through, right? That's all what a library developer itself needs to do. If you look at the other side of the spectrum, there's the commercial view companies, the bigger companies, right? Amazon, AWS, Microsoft, Google, they all, nine out of 10 times, if they have libraries that they own and they're responsible for, they will do something called, let's say, a bug bounty or a disclosure uh, process, which is a good thing because if stuff is relied on in a big time, big way, as you said, Newton's off JSON. Um, if you would have had that one five years ago and I would have grabbed hold of that library and I could do everything with it, then I would be... <laughs> Everybody's code's like putting, compromised. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you will be everywhere, literally everywhere, right? Yeah. And and that's, that's, that's our thing. And I think that's also what the bigger companies have seen, like, hey, we need to safeguard. And we need to also show that we, aside from the fact that if you're a big company, you probably have security teams that run all over the place that make sure that your software is secure. Like we ourselves, we run software to analyze software and we have a product security team that's also part of my department. Those guys are running all over the place. If something happens and something gets disclosed as a vendor, you need to make sure you're top-notch doing all the things you need to do, right? So that's the thing. Um, but getting into what companies can do, they probably offer bug bounties where people can just get money to get it disclosed properly. And if you play along the lines, let's say I find something in .NET and I I, I, I submit it to Microsoft Security at Microsoft.com because they're like responsible they've got the, got the disclosure for it. I'm not sure if it, how it works for AWS SDK stuff, right? You probably have similar things in place. But then once it gets triaged and published, um, you even can make money out of it if you do it in the in the right way, and that's I think that's a good thing, right? Then just not talking something away in the backside, saying like, "Hey, this is for somebody who's got malicious intent and wants to have access to a lot of systems without everybody knowing." That's of course a bad thing. So that was the reason why bug bounties were created, right? To have that initiative for somebody to say like, "I, I can do good with this instead of bad," right? And then selling it off in the black market for billions of dollars. I'm not saying that that's the case, but I'm also not like saying that it didn't happen in the past, right? Because I, I, there are stories around on the internet you can find on, on people doing that. Um, so that's the thing. And I think that's, um, it, it, it's still driven by the people that are, that are doing it themselves, right? And uh, if, if stuff needs to be disclosed and needs to be propagated around NuGet, your NuGet package, that, that, that's the, 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 the library team that needs to do it themselves, the, the people that develop it. Got it. So, so let's say, and this is just hypothetical. Yeah, <laughs> don't, yeah, really don't start removing any NuGet packages I've made, everybody. Um, but let's say I, I find a security vulnerability in a version of my NuGet package. What should be my first step? Like, where do I go to report that to, or who, or who do I report that to? Good question. 
I probably need to get back on that one. I don't know if I have, let's say, on top of my head right now. Um, it's, it's a good one. I, I So the most, I, I don't develop libraries that are widely used, right? So for me, it's just like the stuff that I'm showing and, and releasing. Um, I, I, I don't have the answer to that one, Brandon. I'm sorry right now. Yeah. But, um, there must be some process. We can probably find it and share it with the others for sure. Yeah, I, I kind of assumed and... Yeah, I have no idea if this is the right thing to do. I've never actually done it or had to do it, but yeah, I would just I was never in the spot where I needed to Nougat. publish a CVE for a package <laughs> that I own myself, right? So because I write fully secure software, which is of course totally not true. <laughs> but, it, 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 right. but it's a, it's a good one. It's a good one to find out how it works. Gotcha. And uh, what about uh, Francois? Like, what if somebody finds a security vulnerability in you know Niels mentioned the AWS SDKs? Uh, what's what's AWS's process? Yet for for example, we have a very simple process. We have one single email address you can use, which is aws security at amazon.com. And you can simply um, send an email to this uh, uh, to this email address and report the vulnerability you've discovered. Uh, so you, you can just reach out to to this email address with the the description of the vulnerabilities and we are very serious about security and uh, every uh, report is is uh, investigated awesome good to know yeah it's it's one of those things that gosh you you hope you never have to deal with but probably all of us will have to <laughs> at some <laughs> ahead, point that, that's always what i say it's it's don't assume it won't happen just assume it will happen and then have enough information to act from it right i think if i look at the nugget ecosystem it's probably going to be hey i have this library version i was looking to briefly like this is published but i'm going to retract it because it's it, it's a vulnerable version and this is the information you could probably put it in and then it will be propagated and so this is a new version that will have the fix right that's probably how you would probably publish it from that perspective but um i think it's naive to say that it won't happen because um at least you need to make sure you have the right information yourself and you've done everything you could at that point, right? And with security, it's always the downside as well. I can secure stuff up to the bone, but it will totally be unusable. It's the same with product <laughs> security. And it, and it, it will be product security over a wider. Let's say you develop software for a bigger company and you need to do product security. I think my take on it would be if I do a .NET, let's say a company that uses all .NET within their organization, I would say um, uh, we have a baseline of architecture that we use and security should just be involved in setting, let's say, the, the landmarks in which you need to stay in between. Um, you need to do trap modeling, right? You need to define what type of risks matter the most to those apps that you're developing or what type of organization you are. And second to that, you always need to make um, um, I think you should not get into the way of developers. You need to enable them to use technology in any way. I always get excited if I see something new, like you mentioned, uh, .NET 8 is going to be released in November. I've been looking into the preview bits as well, saying, like, oh, this is cool. I need to look into it from our static analysis perspective. Right? Those are the things that I work on right now, which gets me excited. And I don't want people to be scared of like, hey, I cannot use new stuff, because that's not true. And product security, doing that in the right way, it should be like, should be like no interference unless it's really needed and um and then work your way down from that and, and with the same reason extending it to knowing what you run where right as i said before that's a, that's the key thing um and based on that um limit the risks because um it's naive 
to say it's not going to happen. <laughs> so, Claude, Claude, question for you, Niels. I've I've always assumed that if if I'm running my code in the cloud, that mm-hmm. you know, whatever cloud I'm choosing, AWS in particular, have like we just have an army of security people. They they just like you, they live, they breathe this stuff uh, to help ensure my code is, or at least the server my code is running on, is secure. Um, and I'm, I'm, it's kind of a two-parter, but curious how, how accurate that assumption is that I can kind of offload that part of my brain to the people smarter than me uh, working on the cloud. But also, you know, as we move up layers of abstraction, like you mentioned earlier, uh, like if I have something running in a serverless Lambda where I'm not even touching anything about the server, I don't, I don't even care how many server instances I have because it's all serverless. No. Um, is that more secure than running my own virtual machine? The, the correct answer will always be depends, right? That's, <laughs> that's the, Good answer. the correct answer. Um, I, think, I think you're right about the fact like you, you hand out stuff to a bigger team that's totally aware of what they're doing. Um, I, I, you don't need to worry about patching machines or anything anything else. You do need to worry about the way that your Lambdas gets configured and how IAM is uh, like sorted out, right? That's still your responsibility. But you, you, you take away the need of updating machines. I think that's a good thing for sure. Um, so I always say like, yeah, I, I, would, I would trust any bigger vendor doing the right thing. On the other end, um, a lot of things you also see with, with, with cloud in general is to, like, there's a lot of more attention for trusted computing in general. Um, and, and you also want to maybe focus on um, data encryption that even gets encrypted during its compute because it's really sensitive data, right? That, that's the other thing you see. Um, a nice example is I talked about WebAssembly a bit before. Um, and WESI is a really nice standard that allows you to run stuff outside. So. Uh, there's a project called Anarch that allows you to do trusted computing that will abstract away all the layers of cloud computing and it will run on top of a trusted module that's on your CPU level and it will run WebAssembly on that and it will eliminate every layer in between. Because if you're paranoid, and let's say if you deal with data that's really sensitive, then I would not even trust the bigger vendors. If that's if that's your risk model, right? If that's the thing that you're really worried about. Um, but in general, doing processes, automation, bigger companies, then I would definitely go for just trusting what's there. Aside from the fact that, hey, um, access control, having a VLAN with all uh, containers communicating with each other, like egress, that kind of thing, that that's still um, pr- like uh, you want to limit um, the accessibility to all of it, right? You want to have layers of defense on that way, on that thing as well. And with lambdas, you're already up uh, much higher in the layer you need to protect. But um, yeah, it's it's definitely a good choice for sure. I agree with you on that. Yeah, yeah. And if I may, uh, something I've learned when I've joined LRS is this motto of LRS is and we are um, accountable for the security of the cloud, and user customers are responsible for the security in the cloud. So that means that. We are responsible for the security of the infrastructure uh, of the service, uh, but you are responsible for the security of your application and what your application is doing. And if we are discussing about Lambda, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, we ensure that if you are running .NET code inside your Lambda function, it it cannot 
for example, request data from a DynamoDB table without you giving explicit permission to your Lambda function that, okay, you can call this DynamoDB table. Yeah. So we, we ensure that, okay, if you don't give the right permission, you can't call this service. But if you give the right permission, if you are lazy, if you, you don't want to <laughs> set up fine-grained uh, permission, for example, and you give too much permission, that's, that's, that's your, your duty. So I did that once and quickly got yelled at by AWS. I was, I was, I had a conference talk coming up and I was put, putting together a demo and I was like, yeah, like I don't need, this is just like a hello world Lambda function. It's not doing anything. Um, so yeah, I just opened it up and then immediately got emails <laughs> from AWS. Like, what are you doing? Why would you ever do this? Oh my goodness. How much data did you store here before we caught this? I was like, oh, okay, no, I'll just delete it. It's fine. You, I, I didn't even need this. I was just playing around. Um, but I loved that response. <laughs> even though I think that's, that, that's good, right? It, it's, um, access keys to buckets, right? A lot of the a lot of the data breaches. If you don't have if you don't lock down uh, your S3 bucket in the right way, that's what we've seen in the past, and I think that happened with the others as well. That that's still a big thing. But if you don't lock it down by default, and people need to explicitly, as you mentioned, Francois, that's a good thing. That's the capability based security model. And that's funny because WebAssembly does exactly the same. Like you need to explicitly say this is what you're allowed to do. I think that's pretty powerful because then. Also, as a developer, you've got a pretty clean view on what you expect. Right? I expect to reach out to that queue, get that message, or I expect to write out this data element to a database, and that's it, right? That, that, that's exactly uh, uh, what you want. And then it's good that there's automation that will point you out, like, hey, you're doing the wrong stuff, right? It's, 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 and, that, and then that's good. Like, even if you look at layer seven application layer, right? If you just the OC model of layer seven, that's the layer that you interact with. Um, Let's say a high privilege account for your software gets created at a certain point in time. Why not have instrumentation telling you like, hey, this is what happened. Somebody created this account, right? It's, it's telemetry that's, that's done on top of it, which also needs to be uh, valuable. And then if you look at all the layers underneath that you don't need to worry about because you're running in the cloud, which is good, that's fine. But then you still have the obligation to be aware like, hey, logically, also from business perspective, this is the thing that, that needs to ring an alarm bell or this should not happen, right? That's the, the, the stuff that you need to still do yourself. I think that, that that's additional stuff for the same reason you said like, hey, I created something that's secure and unsecure by default and now I have IT security hanging. I I had the same stuff like, hey, I run something on my machine and I was like, hey, what are you, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm happy that you reach out to me because then I know that these systems work, right? For the same reason. <laughs> And then see like, hey, what data was involved, right? Doing the whole the diligence on that. That makes sense for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there, there is a concept called, uh, I don't know if uh, I'm not very familiar with it, but I love the, the name is Zero Trust. Sorry, I, yeah, yeah. It, it, yes, it's quite simple. Okay, Zero Trust. Don't trust anything. You, even if you are in your own environment, don't trust anything. Build everything as if you can't trust anyone. Yeah, that, that's yeah, that, that's exactly how you could put it as well. Like you cannot do anything unless uh, specified. That that that's the right thing. That's the thing. Putting it back to the .NET ecosystem. That's the thing I'm I, I'm missing out on. And if you then look at, I'm not sure if you both of you like even worked with Codex security or uh, there's like a big 
blue book. I think it was written, written by somebody in France, maybe, but it was about .NET framework security. It was this big, and the capabilities you had with code access security was it was like that. It's it's wide. There's a lot of stuff you could do with it, which is quite powerful. But I think it was too complex in order to be successful, right? So if you then put it inside the hands of a developer, then um, then you can lock it down completely. That's that's fine, right? But um, you need to be effective. And if if tool gets too wide or too complex, then I think from a security perspective, it will have the opposite effect because it will just annoy people and people will do the opposite, right? And that's not what you want. So that's the thing. And then zero trust, yes. Even looking at like software in general, deploying stuff, do it, right? It's like, it's the same with um, smaller images that you run inside containers, right? That we have seen uh, happening. I'm sure like if, if AWS has got this whole distribution as well, but if you can lock down stuff that's installed by default, right? There was less to worry about for the same reason. Right. And it's it I feel like it it makes you more intentional as a developer. You know, yeah. don't get me wrong, I've certainly gotten upset at things like that, where it's like, oh, like what I have to spend more of my time to open this up instead of um it just already being available to me. But mm-hmm. yeah, once you get over that moment of frustration, um and zoom out a little bit. It's like, you know, yeah, I think I think this is a good thing. Like, I I don't know everything. I probably shouldn't be trusted with this much power. So, yeah, I like that idea of lock it down by default and then force the developer to say, yes, I want this and be thoughtful about yeah. what you're opening up instead of trying to almost play like, like that carnival game or like whack-a-mole where you're just trying to find the vulnerabilities that and give developers the right primitives to take good decisions, right? The API needs to be descriptive, saying, like, if you're doing this, then <laughs> it might be a bad idea, right? Are and you I know, sure? Like, with, 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 .NET <laughs> Core, with .NET Core, the way that the APIs were structured, they were definitely different. And looking at, like, the whole, let's say, suppressing certificate validations, right? That's like, a, that's a thing you need to do in your code. At some point, you just need to register a handle and say, hey, return true, which, of course, a bad thing to do. But doing that, I think there's also like something that's called dangerous. That's how the how the, the, the thing was called, which makes it into your face as a developer. So I'm like, hey, are you sure? Oh, are you sure? You want to do <laughs> and from static analysis, it makes it easy to flag it. Because I you know, like, hey, if somebody does that call, then yeah, we can add that vulnerability to the list of output because we know that that's an issue for sure, right? But okay. getting good primitives, for sure, that, that, that's, that's the best thing. And developers, yeah are aware of a lot of things that they expect from their code and that, that it should be more into, let's say, zero trust and starting out like, this is what you're allowed to do. And this is out of the question by default. Yeah, and, and speaking of tools like that, uh, you shared with with us before the show, uh, this library that you've made, uh, Fennec, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, so in order to, um, and it was like, I think it was 2019 when I released it. Yeah, that's 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 the website. You will end up in my GitHub repo. You will see that it's uh, it's been stale for a while, but it allows you to dump contents of libraries and it allows you to see what type of calls are being done inside a library. And I think that's more like a heuristics thing. First, of course, you need to figure it out if you're allowed to do it based on the license from the library. That's the disclaimer I'm going to give you right now. But um, you can have a better sense of like, hey, as I said before, this is a library that processes documents. Do I expect it to do this call or do I expect it to have 
um, the ability to connect to a TCP socket somewhere, right? That, that's, that's an anomaly if you look at it from a logical perspective. And the tool uh, just dumps that into a file and you can easily skim it. And for me, even if I start out with newer bits, I still use it myself just to create that list of things that are being done inside the code base. And then I can just prioritize looking at security research, like, hey, this is, oh, this is the area that I think is, is important, what's happening here, or this is something that has changed compared to the previous version I had of this library. And, and, and that will give people more sense of what's inside, right? So that's, that's the project. And it's, it's a simple, it uses mono internally, it will just look into uh, the DIL and it will dump it. And I, as I said, I, I still use it myself a lot. Um, even you mentioned uh, JetBrains Rider, if you use that IDE, I'm really happy with that one as well. It has a real good ability of digging into existing libraries and following through. I use that one myself a lot as well. So um, I think, yeah, that, that, that's the tool. Um, that's Fennec. And on, on, on extending to that, so currently um, I'm, I'm working on something which would allow you to have better visibility of libraries and of NuGet packages. And I'm not sure if either of you is familiar with a concept called scorecards. So um, the Open SSF, um, it's the Open Security Security Foundation, part of the Lynx Foundation, have published a standard called Open SSF, which is security scorecards that allow you to have some metrics on a library. And what they have done, I think um, uh, Google has produced a thing called devs.dev that allows you to show the metrics of a library. And what you can do is like, hey, you can look into um, is the, the source repo a lockdown in such a good way? Does the build um, actions that are being done, do they do stuff that's known to be malicious or be problematic? Is the package signed? Do they do fast testing on the package? Um, like, how is, it, how is it released? Like, how many maintainers are active on the project, right? Um, a lot of people touching code might be a risk, but if nobody touches it or it relies on a single person, that's also a risk. But that allows you to create a metric around a package and give it a figure, almost like a nutrition label on food, saying like, hey, this contains too much sugar. Meals, you're not supposed to eat it because it contains too much sugar. That's always my problem. And if you have that based <laughs> on packages, you can do it. And there are some initiatives from NuGet itself where they want to have NuGet scorecards. There's a design done. I think they're like progressing on that. And I myself, I'm also working on, on extending Fennec with the ability to show a score of a package. And then you can decide for yourself if you're willing to take the risk <laughs> to use stuff, or if you say like, this is too smelly, or this is a pretty good score, right? And don't get me wrong, because if you then end up to the score and people discussing saying like, hey, but then the goal would be to have a good score. The goal is to have secure, more secure software with less risk, right? That at least that will be my take on it. But um, it will give you visibility. I think that that's, that's pretty neat. So that's Fennec next version, and I'm working on it right now in Q4. I'm, I'm fall should be something I'm going to publish stuff around it and show it to to the to the community to use. Um, so keep an eye on that one. Right now, that one will redirect. There's also blog.fennec.dev. That's my blog um, where I've written down some of the stuff. But I will I will I will publish that one uh, more once I have a bit of a say. Okay, this is this is good enough. I'm going to share it. But I think it's important to have those metrics and to have visibility. Mm -hmm on what's inside a package and allow people to decide for themselves if they want to do it or not and want to use it. Right. Yeah. I love that idea. I've, and I, it's breaking my brain why we, 
we haven't done this already, but yeah, just that little scorecard. Like when I install a NuGet package, uh, yeah, tell me, tell me like red light, yellow light, green light, right? Like doesn't do the SEA like, stuff maybe. you mentioned. <laughs> doesn't look into the transitive list. Doesn't look, like, right. like it will only be released if there's zero vulnerabilities from, right? For example, that's that's a good metric. And then you can take it on and say, like, hey, this is less of a risk for me if I use it right now. Right? That's the thing. It's all about risk and, and determining the risk and then action, taking action on it because it will happen, right? <laughs> As I said before, not to make everybody paranoid, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, Niels. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit because uh, you've had so many great suggestions, so many great recommendations, and I think we we got to bring you back for a round two just to keep the conversation going because security is so important. But let's say we we're starting a new project today. We're .NET developers, and we want to do things right from the beginning. What's the first thing or maybe the first two things that we should start with for our brand new library to set us up for success for security? Yeah. Um, what would I do? So I would first, as I said, assess the risks in general. And maybe with the library, that's not something that you could easily do to say, like, I need to create a threat model, right? Because that's more like a full context of an app. But let's say you know that you're going to deal with external data, you're going to parse it, right? That's a, that's a risk. And based on that, um, at least be aware of that. Coding, secure coding in general, right? Don't uh, introduce any unnecessary vulnerabilities. There's a lot of um, tools that can scan your software for vulnerabilities. We're one of them. Uh, I think AWS has got their own, right? The other ones, they all run static code analysis as well. Even within the .NET ecosystem, we have analyzers that are pretty rich, that allow you to uh, take on stuff and you can easily see like, hey, this is a smell or you should be not doing this. Uh, that's step one. I would say um, automation is of course king. So make sure you have that transitive uh, S-bomb, as I said before, like which dependencies and have some proof of this is being built by me right now, or this is being built by the people who maintain this project and even have provenance uh, included with that saying like, hey, it's built on on this uh, this, this this distribution of Linux. Uh, these are the, the parameters that are used, right? In order to have a full transparency on, on how it's being built. I think that will be good because based on that, it allows the consumers of your library to take the right action because by taking you on and pulling you into that project, they extend their own supply chain with yours. Right? That's what I said when I started out talking about this. And I think you should give them the tools and the right things to, to take their own decisions based on that. So I think that's the best thing to do. And on top of that, disclosure, right? If you open up and have a section within during the library, like where it's being published or on, on the source repo, saying like, hey, we do security disclosures, of course, because we really appreciate if you help out fixing stuff, right? Community um, is also um, pretty much aware if you have components that are used by a lot that we need to make sure that those are secure, right? Make sure you have a channel that they can publish and they can talk to you. And depending on what you want to do with it, right? Maybe um, um, it's an issue in some tracker or something else, but be transparent about the process in order to that they can reach out to you. Because I've disclosed stuff myself and then you reach out to a vendor and say, like, I've got an issue. Yeah, I put it in an email. I'm saying, no, we, I need to discuss it with you right now. I might even want to do a phone call with you because I want to explain what's happening here, right? And I've done those kinds of disclosures. 
And it's important that people are not pushed back saying like, oh, it's not an issue, right? Because if a security researcher reach out to the project, so like this is an issue, um, yeah, it would be nice if, if they know what the process is and they can they can uh, share the information, right? Because hopefully that's the goal. Aside from the people who have other intent <laughs> getting into paranoia, um, that, 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 that's always going to be. But I'm, I'm, I'm on the other side of the spectrum. I trust people by default. Right. That's the, otherwise you will lose your sanity. I think that's it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, we even have uh, Metzen around in the comments. Uh, he's joining us. He's from uh, Project Discovery and yeah. agrees with you totally. He says the OSS for security is the future. Um, and say so quick, quick shout out to Project Discovery. Uh, they have a tool called Nuclei that you can use for scanning as well. And obviously shout out to Vericode where Niels works. Um, Thank you. Appreciate it. Niels, we've only got a, a couple minutes left for mm. folks who want to continue the conversation. And certainly we want to have you back on the show once uh, once Fennec, uh, the new version 2.0 comes out. Uh, yeah, we'll good. have you on. You can show it off. But yeah, for folks who want to continue this conversation around security, uh, where can they find you? And are, what communities should they join to just stay plugged into the conversation? So for me... Um, I think you put in my Twitter handle. I'm not doing a lot of stuff on, on, on X anymore. It's X, I would call it right now. Um, but you will find my Mastodon. I'm running for Sec Mastodon. That's that's my, my main uh, main thing. You can reach out to me and drop me a DM there. Um, and if you go to Fanac, you will also find uh, email and other stuff uh, you can just use. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think those are the two ones uh, that, are, that, that will probably work best in order to, to reach out. Fantastic. Well, Niels, thanks so much for joining the show. Can't wait to see all the amazing things you're doing. Hopefully, cool. folks, <laughs> I know I learned a lot <laughs> that I have to go yeah. do now. <laughs> I need to uh, add one of those security.md files to my repos, certainly. Uh, yeah. but, but thanks so much for joining us today. We'll have you back soon. And thank you for joining us. We come to you live every two weeks on the first and third Mondays. You can find us here on the AWS Twitch channel. So don't forget to subscribe. So you don't miss a future episode. And with that, we'll see you in two weeks.